Welcome to the first deep dive into the Borderlands of Living project. Today, Lisa Marie Andersen and Alberta Seberg have stopped by to discuss opportunities and challenges of introducing artificial intelligence or AI as a diagnostic tool for clinicians. We will draw on a manuscript that our guests have written, in which they propose a framework to help clinicians decide whether or not to continue the treatment of patients facing critical end-of-life decisions. At time of recording, this work hasn't been published yet, so make sure you check out the show notes for updates. We'll discuss the intricacies of explainable AI, black box versus glass box design, and the role of accuracy, transparency, and uncertainty in support of decision making. I'm Arno. And I'm Savannah. Welcome to the Interacting Minds podcast. Welcome, Albert and Lisa Marie. Thank you. Thank you. So last episode, we were joined by the principal investigator of the project that you're part of, Borderlands of Living. And today we will dig a bit deeper into the project that you work together on. But before we get started with the project, can you shortly introduce yourself and kind of who you are? Alberta, do you want to start? Sure. Um, my name is Alberta and I'm currently a PhD student at Center for Music in the Brain. I have a background in cognitive science and I did my internship during my master's with the Borderlands of Living project and then continued also working on it when I was writing my master's thesis, so roughly a year. Um, and then now I'm doing something completely different, which is music and music perception in cochlear implant patients, but I kind of still do this as a side project because, um, yeah, the interest is still there. How about you, Lise-Marie? Well, I'm Lisa Marie Anderson, and I'm a philosopher of mind and neuroscience and medicine. And I've been working on um, issues of traditional philosophy, mental causation, and also causality in the mind and in the brain and neuroscience and that. But recently I've moved into a new field where I'm also exploring philosophy of medicine, but also from a qualitative point of view, so introducing new methods into my research. And a very new perspective to the field also in return. Last week we were joined by Meta who was um, talking to us about the project starts. And if people are interested in that, please go back to the past episode on the podcast to learn a bit more about the Borderlands of Living project as a whole. But this week we really want to talk about a problem space that I know and me found really interesting to kind of prepare for as well is what is the role of explainable AI in making decisions about life and death consciousness? Yeah, one of the subjects that really came in light with Mede was the importance of new technologies in collecting and creating more data and more information in order to reduce the uncertainty of diagnosis for patients with disorder of consciousness. Uh, first, Lisa Marie, maybe you could help us understand what a disorder of consciousness is. Well, disorders of consciousness is an umbrella term where you have um, different kinds of uh, disorders, um, but all concerned with consciousness, of course. Um, but it goes all the way from being comatose, that is uh, non-contactable, does not have open eyes, does not react to any kind of touch. or uh, So the person who suffers from this is actually uh, yeah, in what we call a state of coma. Sometimes uh, these people will at some point uh, 
open their eyes and kind of enter into a, a kind of state that could look like you are awake, but really it seems like there's still no contact, people are not contactable. And that's kind of what sometimes called a vegetative state or uh, unresponsive wakefulness syndrome. But sometimes um, people will, let's imagine this is a patient who's <laughs> kind of slowly waking up maybe, uh, they will sometimes enter into what we call a minimal conscious state where they might sometimes seem to react to, to small uh, things or touch or light or other kind of stimuli. So, so that's kind of what covers the disorders of consciousness. So you have like coma, vegetative state or unresponsive wakefulness syndrome or minimal conscious state. And I guess the next one would be like complete conscious, which, which of course would not be a disorders of consciousness. So that's kind of the hmm. how you usually picture it as a kind of um, all, almost one dimension of consciousness where you start at nothing. But often you think as the vegetative state that people are not conscious. conscious. So yeah. Whereas in the minimally conscious state, you would have a fluctuating capacity for consciousness. It's also important for the misdiagnosis thing that you're thought of as being unconscious in yes this has been what is standardly assumed and it's been the ex yeah, expectation but this is where uh, neuroscience for example have questioned whether this is actually the case that mm. people in vegetative states are whether they're unconscious or not or not so that's one of the uncertainties that we meet in our project This seems to be a really um, important distinction to make because I'm assuming that depending if a patient is um, in a minimally conscious state or in a vegetative state it makes a huge difference in terms of what happens next. So what is the diagnosis and the following treatment? Yes. So, I mean, in the clinic, it's not often that we see this kind of... Uh, hard divide, but at least in research, that's what you often meet, that when people have looked into this, it seems like there's a lot more potential for rehabilitation if they're in a minimal conscious state, whereas uh, people in a vegetative state, the chances that they will be have potential for rehabilitation are lower. And that, of course, ref is reflected in how they're treated as well in the clinic. But it's not as sharp a, a line as one might think from when you read the research. So, so there's a difference more... between clinical and uh, research. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a very difficult area to make decisions in and diagnosis in. So that's why clinicians are often very careful to make these kind of diagnosis. It's kind of a rating scale. Yeah. So you rate different areas and functionality, and then you get a number of like where you are on that, um, what do you call it? Uh, Spectre, yeah. I guess. Consciousness scale. Yeah. Scale. It is, it is a, scale. a scale. Yeah. But it, I guess this is also exactly um, where we jump into kind of the problem space that you are exploring with your paper that we are, or the manuscript of your paper that we're discussing mm -hmm. today is that we at this point, I'm a clinician, I'm imagining myself right now. Um, I have a patient that is either showing signs of my, like mal wakefulness or is in a vegetative state. And now I need to make this really consequential decision of do I continue treatment or do I stop it? And there's different ways that I, I can draw on different resources to help me. So you looked into what is the role of machine learning in AI in this space? Well, more looking into the potential for machine learning and AI, because it's not really 
uh, a part of it right now. Right now, they're relying on this, they call it a prognostication strategy algorithm, but it's, it's more of a guideline. So they have these different measurements, different tests, and then um, they also have information on how, when to do these different tests and and how you then say, okay, if two of these uh, exceeds the threshold, then poor prognosis is likely. If not, then you just wait and re-evaluate. One could be, for example, neurospecific NLS, which is uh, a biomarker for neuroatrophy, and maybe uh, MLA and EG. So these two, you don't know how, how much they would impact the likelihood of poor prognosis compared to two different test results. So it's kind of uh, these clinicians will have to wait all this by themselves. And some might uh, say that this test is a bit more important and this test is a bit less important and harder to interpret. But they they don't have anything in the guideline that says, okay, these two are like, this means this chance or this likelihood or these two means this likelihood. It's It's more like if two of these are present, then poor prognosis is likely. Yeah, and they, they have um, also very little knowledge about how the combinations of the uh, test results actually are combined to make a fi final or complete picture for the patient or prognosis, of course. Yeah. yeah. So they have these test results and then they have the assessments of consciousness and they also have like the general clinical picture of the patient. So how do we experience them? subjectively when we are looking at them and do we feel like they're responding um so all these things they have to put them together and say okay taking all this into account it's um not that likely or it is likely that this patient will have potential for rehabilitation so in this medical context what exactly do we mean by artificial intelligence so artificial intelligence is a very broad term. So mm -hmm. We can go back and use the umbrella term. Um, so kind of using computers to mimic what people can do or human can do. Um, where, yeah, machine learning is a subgroup of artificial intelligence where you um, you define less. It's the machine is learning. It's not like you're saying exactly how it should function or putting all these human constraints it's more automatic so the model is structured by the data it observes itself and less by a human observer if we want to use artificial intelligence mm -hmm. we need to gather data in the context of disorder of consciousness what would that data look like what would we feed our models so the idea is to try to predict the likelihood of showing rehabilitation potential. Mm -hmm. So it's not, uh, consciousness is a part of it, but it's alongside all these different tests that they make. So that's part okay. of the prognostication strategy algorithm they're using currently in the clinic. So there's, for example, some EEG tests, right? And there's some um, other measurements of um, muscles. Yeah, so it's... Uh, somatosensory uh, evoked potentials where you um, stimulate at the median nerve at the wrist and then you have some electrodes where you have one at the cortex and then 
you see if this response is present or absent or delayed. Um, and in their in this uh, guideline, then when it's absent, it's uh, a sign of poor prognosis. Well, so they have this guideline, which they call pro uh, yeah prognostication strategy algorithm. Um, mm -hmm. So they have kind of defined what is important for a prognosis, which is a very nice like foundation to build a model because then you know, okay, this is very well studied um, to be important for the prognosis. And yeah, so you will have these different test results. And I guess you could also use the score uh, of the scale that we talked about and the hope with using a machine learning algorithm or something is that we can have another tool for helping doctors make the decision and maybe catch relationships exactly. between. Yeah. So straining also for relatives, families, and yeah. the doctors interacting yeah. because it's also hard. Um, I think Meta mentioned this, and we will go into this a bit more in depth with you and uh, Bess in our yeah. next episode, talking a bit about the relationship between personhood and this disorders of mm. consciousness. Um, but getting back to something, Lisa Marie, that you said earlier about the responsibility the clinicians face. Mm -hmm. So machine learning algorithms in general, as far as I understand it, can have different ways they're programmed. So one could be that they are something called a black box. Mm -hmm. So they're closed off and we don't actually know what the machine algorithm actually picked up on. So we don't know which of the factors, for example, that I better mentioned are picked. And there's something called the glass box, which I think has been uh, becoming more common term which is an algorithm that we can see. So um, where do you see the differences or kind of what is the discussions around those two within the medical space? There is a big discussion in general, I guess. So the black box models have become very popular because they're super powerful and they can handle millions of parameters and can like, they're very easy to make and they're fast in computing time. They have all these great benefits. Um, but yeah, if you want to also understand what the rationale is, then you'd need to unpack the black box uh, with another algorithm. And then we call it the post hoc explainer, um, which will then mimic the, the black box and say, okay, this is, this is how it did this prediction. So then you would aim at high fidelity to the original model where the white the glass box sorry is uh is more the post hoc explainer from the outset so the the transparent one where you can actually see how it goes from input to output um and i think at least we discussed this a lot uh, is that it very much depends on context and that the black box model in some contexts will be a very good framework to choose um but you need to really understand the context in depth before you can de decide which framework to use. Um, could you give us an example of uh, kind of what, what would be one of those cases where a black box might be helpful? So you could, um, for example, do if you do a screening program uh, where it doesn't make a difference maybe if you have a false positive because that, pe that person might come into a checkup and then be told that, okay, nothing is really wrong, but it might catch more cases overall of these patients suffering for, I don't know, could be some kind of cancer or something where it 
it will catch more cases in general. But yeah, in this case, it's it's more critical because it's a question of life and death. We yeah. also we also have this example from our paper where we mention this algorithm that can uh, detect a possible heart attacks during uh, emergency calls. So you know they might pick up. Uh, more cases that there are actually are, they might indicate a heart attack is occurring in more instances that there really are, and then they might dispatch a uh, special kind of ambulance in that case. But if we have enough resources, let's just assume that, <laughs> then it doesn't matter if we send out a few more uh, heart attack uh, ambulances. They just get extra treatment, these patients, and we'll discover more cases uh, where there's actually heart attacks and maybe a be able to prevent those. And in this case, we don't really need to have an explanation of how the AI detects uh, the possible heart attacks. It could be the voice, uh, the, the tone of the voice, it could be the symptoms list, or it could be a lot of different things. And what matters is actually the accuracy. So. Yeah. What do you mean by accuracy? Well, that it so <laughs> good question because of course it doesn't have to be accurate in the sense that it doesn't uh, provide false positives because in this case it won't be a big problem. But we do need them to be accurate in a way that they need to detect those heart attacks that are actually there. If it doesn't do that, then it's a problem. So it's it's accuracy in in that sense. So it's not complete accuracy. But in other cases, we we could when we talk about accuracy. We kind of want accuracy in both cases, both we want to not have false positives and false negatives. So in a medical context, maybe it's more important to control for false negatives, times where we do not detect there is a cancer when there is one, rather than false positive. Where... Sometimes. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, I, I think you can't take a medical, the medical area as one, and that's kind of part of our paper as well, that uh, different uh, medical applications of AI requires different accuracy or, mm -hmm. and that's part of what uh, plays into what is required of explainability in AI as well. So, because, I mean, you could say that false positives can also be a problem, for example, in cancer uh, screening, uh, when people get a, um, you know, a possible diagnosis of cancer and they have to go to the doctor, that creates a lot of fear and uncertainty, um, which might be something we want to avoid in itself. So, yeah, so there's no kind of uh, hard, line. hard line between the two. Uh, but having said that, um, the case that we're looking at, it does matter. There are serious consequences with a false uh, positive Uh, and there is, in this case, uh, imagine that you have diagnosed somebody being conscious and they're really not. <laughs> uh, that sounds, in, in, in some sense, that would sound like a happy story. But in our case, well, in these cases, it's not because then that means continuing uh, the treatment for somebody who is not conscious. Uh, also, it's uh, very uh, a huge pressure on the families in this case. So it's actually kind of so that's where our case or this case of the disorder of consciousness is special in this way. It creates hopes for the family to recover. Yes, hope, and also of course it's a physical strain to uh, for the body of the patient. Um, so we talked about accuracy, but there's this um, 
I think very specific case also for Denmark that clinicians are making the decision. So this is not a family decision, but in Denmark we're talking if if the situation comes that the treatment is continued or not, that's the decision of the clinician. So in your paper, you also talk about like accuracy is one kind of scale that we need to think about, but also the other one is transparency. So you talked about the kind of post-hoc analysis. So I'm imagining it as I have another algorithm who's telling me what's the likely reasoning behind the original algorithm, but it's it, it's still there's a it's an estimation on an original idea. Exactly, it's an approximation, yeah. and um, yeah, I think that in order for clinicians now we're talking about relatives also to inform them properly they also need to maintain informed decision making themselves and that's hard if you only have an approximated version so it could say that okay the black box model is deciding uh, from these two predictors but uh, even if they would have the same accuracy the two models uh, in or predictive accuracy uh, then it's not certain that it would be the same factors that are important for this prediction. Especially in this case, if you have like a misleading explanation, it could be very critical. Yeah, both for informing, but I mean, it's 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 what's informing the clinicians in the end. So they might also have their own weights on different predictors. And if one of the... If the postdoc explainer, for example, uh, implies that it's based on one of the predictors that are very important for the clinicians, then it would be like, okay, yeah, this is what I thought, and then be very overconfident, maybe. Whereas the, the original black box could maybe be based on some of the predictors that the, the clinician would deem less important. And also, it's, it's, it may be hard for the clinicians to know if there is anything else that was not part of this model in the prediction, um, also especially because it can balance so many parameters and it's true infant data and also some pieces of information are just not in the data. So how can you adjust the model prediction when you need to use the clinical picture of the patient or some something else that are not is not present in the model? or like tacit knowledge from the clinic or? So how do you two see the relationship between the clinician and this AI system? We, we have to stress that it's, uh, it's really a supportive uh, system. It's an aid in decision-making. It will never stand alone in decision-making in any, in any way in this context. Um, so it's a, a tool to help the clinician yeah. um, like the consciousness scale for example yeah just like any other tool yeah um, and if you make it in an explainable way like develop it and uh, in an explainable glass model explainable way uh, then um, they will hopefully also be able to see behind <laughs> the the front of the tool mm. and give them more both more confidence but also be able to to navigate the results better. So mm. that's that's the idea, is that it should yeah. act as an aid only. If you don't understand how it works, then it's hard to use as an aid, because then it's more, do I trust it or do I not trust it? Rather than I can see this kind of um, waiting and this alliance with 
what I thought originally or maybe I should check this specific factor again with the patient or kind of just yeah a system instead of just a black box saying okay this patient is not gonna show potential for rehabilitation and then you're like okay but what does that even mean Mm. for me and the decision and yeah so i guess what we a point that we wanted to make uh on explainability and glass box glass blocks models (laughs) is that um while, while some um black box models can be good for some uh, areas and some contexts. In this particular context that we're looking at, we actually do think that explainability is important. And so this is why we want to make a suggestion on how um, to move forward in this field uh, with an explainable model. And I mean, not only explainability, but intrinsic explainability. So the transparency part. Mm. So because the postdoc explainers are also considered to provide explainability. But this is not sufficient in this case because it's so critical. And you offer a term that I've I've read your paper and then I was surprised I never heard about XII, so explainable AI. Can you say a bit more what explainability means in that context? Yeah, so that's a very hard (laughs) question, actually. (laughs) If you look through literature, it's very inconsistent. We define it as... uh, allowing for an understandable reconstruction of why the system reached the specific outcome or the prediction. So what you advocate for is a model that would take the results of those different tests, be that we could explain which part of those tests actually matters in the prognosis of whether we should continue Yeah, so help the clinician in integrating the pieces of evidence mm. or measure mm-hmm. the, the the pieces uh, of information. And um, then also there have been a discussion about the, the current uh, guideline where they're stating that there are some problems. Uh, so first of all, they don't know And the validation of the co- different combinations of the included predictors needs mm-hmm. validation, but also they don't know how they interact. Um, then also they would like more predictors because a lot of patients will end up in the, we don't know, you'll have to wait and see and reevaluate. And then third one is that they would like to be able to predict good outcome. Yeah, so these kind of limitations are also motivating. Like, why could there be a system that could, like, help on some of these points? And I think especially the first point is there is a potential for a system to contribute to that. I'm uh, I'm really intrigued with this limitation you're mentioning. So I'm imagining, so so my understanding of machine learnings would be you have a training model data set. So we have previous data from patients that goes into this model to make predictions about the future. That's often kind of how, how we like kind of use prior information to make better predictions mm-hmm. about the future. Um, isn't there also downfalls if we do that because we might have identified two factors together as there's a group of doctors who have continuously saw these related, they discontinue treatment. And now those factors automatically in a model would become related with each other, even though we actually don't know if that's happening. But the... I'm assuming a model would pick up on this. Exactly. So, um, how do we deal with this data-driven approach? 
Well, we move away from the data-driven approach. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so um, instead of, so the data-driven approaches and these black box model, as, oh. as we already said, they can be very useful in, in different settings. Um, but in this case, this is, yeah, it, it's the risk where you rely on these correlational, spurious correlations instead of causation, like what's really important here. So instead of just disregarding the knowledge we have, then we can just use this to build a model that can both benefit from data, but also from all the research that have been made and gone into this um, guideline that they use. Uh, and also the tacit knowledge from clinicians. And yeah, so we suggest that it should be a patient network model in this specific context, because this model can do exactly that. And you can include uncertainty, um, both uh, for the prediction, but also in the predictors. So you can kind of make a formalized model. So it's mathematically sound and therefore it's explainable. So you can trace it back like why did the model reach a specific output? It may not be relevant in all cases, but in some cases that are very on the borderlands, then it's it might be relevant to actually go back and see, okay, how did we go from input to output? And that's yeah, the Bayesian network model can do that. Mm. It might also be worth stressing here that uh, our primary focus have been the clinicians uh, in terms of where, who is it explainable for, huh. uh, and not so much necessarily, for example, a relative or, um, and, and we think it's important that in order to be explainable for clinicians, they also have to recognize some of the knowledge uh, that they already have in this field. So it's, it's, it's part of that as well. And it, uh, the it also seems that the Bayesian uh, way of the the model, the way of it works, is uh, kind of associated to how clinicians work in general. They uh, experience and collect <laughs> tests and data and so on, and then go back and revise their first beliefs and so on, and update constantly with new tests and yeah. Uh, maybe quickly for those who are unfamiliar, so. Um, all of us have been at the MC for a while and the Bayesian frameworks are the thing, I think, at the moment here. Um, but could you kind of elaborate a bit what is meant by Bayesian? So we have a prior predictor factor, we have some uncertainty that we can express. What is meant by that in this specific context? I guess um, generally you would talk about Bayesian as updating prior probability and then take the new evidence and then you get a posterior probability after you've reviewed the evidence. Um, and then you can tie the uncertainty. So here it could be noise parameters. It could be uncertainty from the tests you could include in the model and you can use the prior probability of the different measurements. So, okay, we know that this test will all, always be between maybe zero and hundred, say that. And then the mean would be 40 and you can like feed all this to the model so it can use this information instead of just not using the information we actually have. I, th I think in a Bayesian context, it's okay to talk about beliefs and having beliefs about phenomenons in the world and 
we have those beliefs and we update them, right? We think something works kind of like that. We go look and, okay, that works sort of how I imagine, but not quite. And we change our beliefs, right? Yeah, exactly. So whenever we get new information, this updates. So I think it's a really interesting factor. And I'm just imagining this might be really helpful for clinicians because um, from having done MRI scans myself, it's um, we know when they went wrong, I would assume. So sometimes also this allows clinicians to add kind of factors to the model where they can say, I don't really trust these results or we did this testing, but we were five people in the room and I'm not sure that confounded the factors. Or mm -hmm. Do you also see this as adding room towards kind of, you talked about like implicit knowledge clinicians already have that yeah. they might not be expressing yet. Plus this thing about uh, using a tool, it's more like a yeah. tool you can, a tool you can also see if you're using it right or if you have knowledge of the tool, uh, whereas uh, a result would be different if you just get a result. But here you get a tool that you can use and you can see the aspects of the tool. And um, I, I guess this is a, because we're, we're talking about a hypothetical case. So this is yeah. not actually used yet. But there have been many examples during corona, but also previously with cancer treatments, where AIs have been used and then um, picked up on font sizes instead of on actual kind of differences in x-rays of lungs um mm -hmm. do you think this bayesian approach could address all of these things well it's hard to <laughs> say all of these things i mean i definitely think that for example i also there is this case where um someone was denied parole uh because of uh this kind of black box model was uh applied um, and I think that definitely in a lot of these cases, you can use Bayesian modeling to make sure that you use the appropriate predictors and you constrain the model to the knowledge you have. So I think it's also important to now we make it sound like you should always make a Bayesian model if you can. Um, but the thing is that it's, very time consuming and it, it requires a lot of work whereas making a neural network will just be a much faster solution so when it's a critical context at least I think we would say that you should consider um, the Bayesian network model or other types at least, of yeah um, at least when it's a critical context uh -huh. where false positives are a problem so that's one of the main differences, uh, I guess. So the the example with the heart attack and the ambulance is also critical in some sense. But here, the decision that you're making um, uh, because of the, the results from the tool doesn't determine life or death in that way, at least, Still, even though it's still critical. So it also really depends on what kind of um, place does the support tool have in the decision making and where does it come in and how what's the weight of that decision and is it only in terms of false positive and are there any problems with false positives in your case which is what we think there is in our case yeah also think especially in this context and maybe a lot of other contexts but the thing that um, you can include the clinicians from the outset. So when you 
want to build the model, you use their knowledge, also the tacit knowledge, and the part of including them from the outset will also make them feel more of an ownership, um, which would probably help implementation later on. Um, whereas you can, if you come with this, oh, I have this very cool uh, XG boost model that can uh, predict very accurately, and then they're just like, yeah, what, what, what does, what is this, and what does it mean, and how does it work? And here you can actually do this iterative process of of um, building the model and refine the model, um, and make sure that it speaks to their knowledge and their domain. It's also important that uh, we can't fix all problems with bias and data, for example. So the model doesn't fix that. You have to have good data. So there's a lot of uh, issues that uh, you see in, in science everywhere, and the model doesn't fix that. So it's not like a, a, a cure for everything. Uh, you still have to have good data. You have to build theories on the data. So it's not a quick fix in any way. <laughs> Should each clinic have their own model or should we have a big shared model? Well, it would be nice to have a big shared model. <laughs> but um, also if you could get the same data from every clinic, then you would be able to improve the model as well. Um, but I mean, there's also differences in how things work. Uh, in healthcare, uh, different regions do different do it in different ways. So, so different tests or. Um, I mean, we we can't imagine the yeah, ideal case always like a health system that has all the equipment for all the tests. Uh, we can't imagine. Well, we can imagine that, but it's not the case in the world, right? So it's not everywhere that you could... This is kind of the ideal case that we're, we're looking at in some sense. And it also really matters uh, to potential for rehabilitation, whether there's any offers for rehabilitation. Mm. Um, so it really depends on the health system that is integrated into. What do you hope happens when you um, share that paper? So, so what would you, your hope be for the future, kind of your takeaways from really exploring the space of explainability of kind of new technologies in healthcare? For one, um, hope that focus can be moved a bit so it's not only always these very state-of-the-art deep learning models that is the perfect fit. It's not one size fits all. So um, consider different approaches and look at the context first. So instead of saying, okay, I really want to make a neural network model, um, let's do it here. They could use a model, then say, okay, this context is, uh, is very complex. So where is it going to be? What are the workflows? Who are going to use it? Are there other stakeholders that are relevant? What about legislation? All these different things. Consider the context on a broad level and say, okay, which framework can fit this specific context? Yeah. Yeah. So we really, uh, you know, encourage that as an interdisciplinary uh, collaboration on 
developing these systems and especially of course with people in the field mm. um, which will also help a future implementation so it's not only um, a question of reaching the best tools in that way but also getting them implemented yeah including the end user will also yeah. make it easier to understand the context so it's yeah and you're raising a beautiful point because we've called this season research and interaction and i'm uh, smiling at an here where do you see your own role? Because you both entered from very different backgrounds into the clinical practice space. So uh, what did you gain or what did you take away from this kind of clinical practice with research interaction? We learned that even though we thought in the manuscript that we had stressed a lot that it was an, a tool for aiding the clinicians in their decision, when it's read by clinicians, uh, it might be interpreted as, you know, oh, you just come in with AI and want to fix everything and want to uh, get get the answers. And um, and we were like, no, we, we, we want it as a support tool. So I think it's important to stress the role of AI yeah. in the clinic. Uh, and that's uh, also a conversation that we can have. Uh, so that's, I think that's, that's one of the most important roles yeah. for us is to have that conversation with clinicians. So... I guess that's one takeaway that I got from this interaction. I mean, also just within the Borderlands group, I think with different backgrounds, I mean, I also learned a lot just talking about uh, this area and also all the other areas, but I mean, just general perspective taking, being better at seeing it from different angles and it's not only how you would solve a problem, but also what other people need and how they see the problem. How can you, yeah, take other people's perspectives? I think both within the group, but also in the clinic, talking with clinicians, it's very important. Yeah, also, um, it, it quickly became very visible to us that those um, diagnoses that are in the research literature uh, and it's very um, kind of spelled out and very obvious in the, in the literature, when you go to the clinic, that's not necessarily the case. So that was a, a, an experience for, for us. Um, that doesn't mean you can't talk about these diagnoses as separate and so on but uh, in, the, in the research. But it's important to keep an eye on as well when you develop, for example, an AI tool that it does not necessarily have to give a diagnosis in that kind of way, or it, you know, that's not how we talk about it in the clinic. So mm. that was an insight that we got as well. Great point. Thank you incredibly much for uh, joining us and talking to us about your project and um, for taking us along on this um, puzzle. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks. This podcast is edited and produced by Kiersi Tilk, Anno Quentin Vermeer, and Savannah Schulz. Music by Simon Kag. The podcast is funded by the Interacting Mind Center Seed Funding Grant. Visit the Interacting Mind Center website to gain access to show notes and further information at interactingminds.au.dk.